Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. Well, yet another sign that the world is falling apart. Uh, Bill and Melinda Gates are calling it quits. Yeah, I, I was stunned when I read that in the news uh, a week ago. As you know, Bill, uh, Bill is the co-founder of Microsoft, fourth richest person in the world, worth $146 billion. Of course, his listing will probably drop a bit once he does the divorce settlement with Melinda. And, but it was, you know, it was stunning. No, nobody saw it coming. You know, you kind of expect it. If it's J-Lo and A-Rod, if it's, you know, Kim Kardashian and Kanye West, years of haggling and infidelity and trauma drama, you kind of expect the marriage to implode. But Bill and Melinda, uh, married 27 years, raised three kids, uh, oversee the largest uh, charitable foundation in the world, seem happy, seem content, and their, their marriage ends up breaking up. When they announced it on Twitter a week ago, people were not only stunned, they were heartbroken. The article in USA Today where I, I read it, it said that you know all of us are now looking at our marriages and saying, hey, if it could happen to Bill and Melinda, maybe it could happen to us. I was reading the article in the presence of my wife, and I turned to Sue, and I said, babe, are you concerned, you know, Bill? and Melinda, like about us. She assured me we're okay. I just thought you'd want to know that. But, you know, another indication that the world's fallen apart, that the very foundation of society is crumbling beneath our feet. Who could argue with the observation that people are desperately in need of hope these days? Now, if we open the Bible, if we open God's word in search of such hope, to which of the 66 books, Old and New Testament, might we turn to find the encouragement we need? Okay, what book might be known as uh, Songs of Hope? What do you think? Psalms. If you guess Psalms, absolutely right. If you guess that this is my introduction to a new series in the Psalms, you are right again. Now, we did a similar series a year ago, a couple of months into COVID. We decided that we needed Songs of Hope. So we looked at six Psalms of the 150 Psalms, uh, Psalms that were calming, uplifting, revital revitalizing, fortifying, and all of these benefits that we thought were, were so necessary a year ago, we think they're still necessary today and maybe even more so. So we're going to look at an additional five Psalms over the next several weeks, beginning with Psalm 11. So if you brought a Bible with you, and I love it when I see Bibles because Bibles need to be marked up, okay? They say that the, uh, you know, the sign of a life that's not falling apart is a Bible that is. All right, so bring your Bible with you, mark it up as we go. I want to acknowledge right up front that this is one of my favorite Psalms. Uh, For years, I have uh, slowly but surely been memorizing various Psalms. I think I'm up to 22, 23 Psalms now. And by the way, this is a really good practice. If you've never memorized any scripture, take a Psalm you really like, commit it to memory. When you get done with it, memorize another one. Okay, keep going with it. Psalm 11 has got to be in my top four or five favorite psalms. It's the one I turn to whenever it feels like the world is falling apart, whether that's the world in general or my uh, particular world. 
The main theme of the psalm, as we're going to discover, is God's sovereignty. And by the way, we're going to link each one of these psalms in this series to one of God's attributes. Same thing we did a year ago when we did this psalm series. And so the attribute that we're looking at is sovereignty. Okay, now Psalm 11 never uses the word sovereignty, but it's all about God's power, his rule over all creation, including our our own lives. God, as someone has said, God is large and in charge. And that's a pretty good definition for sovereignty. God is large and in charge. And in order to connect with this particular attribute of God, in order to gain hope and strength from it, Uh, There are three things we must do that are described in Psalm 11. So even if you don't take another lick of notes, write down these three things, okay? Number one is we got to look ahead. Excuse me, we got to look around. I'll get my own notes down here. We got to look around. So let me read the opening verses of Psalm 11 to you. You could follow along in your Bible or see the words on the screen. In the Lord I take refuge. How then can you say to me, Flee like a bird to your mountain, for look, the wicked bend their bows. They set their arrows against the strings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? you got to read that a little bit out of breath. All right, what can the righteous do? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, if your Bible's open in front of you, you see how at the top of the psalm it says this is of David before verse 1, of David. It means this is one of the psalms that David wrote. Now, he wrote about half the Psalms, about 73 out of the 150 Psalms. And because we know so much about David's personal life from the Old Testament books of 1 and 2 Samuel, we could sometimes connect one of his his Psalms with what was going on in his life at the time. For example, Psalm 11. You know, this Psalm about David in trouble and the people are saying, you know, flee like a bird to your mountain and he's got to be on the run. We know of at least two instances in David's life when this was literally true. One of those times occurred before David was king. Wicked King Saul was ruler at the time. Saul was horribly jealous of, of David. David was the young hero who had slain the giant Goliath. And Saul didn't want to lose his throne to David, so he put out a contract on David. There were hitmen trailing David. He had to run for his life. A second instance in David's life where this was the case was uh, several decades after he had become king. And now his son, his own son, Absalom, was leading a coup against his dad, Absalom had an army at his back, and so David thought it was the better part of wisdom to get out of town temporarily. You know, to head off to the mountains, so to speak. So some Bible scholars say, no doubt, one of the two instances I just described forms the background for Psalm 11. But other Bible scholars say, no, 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 no. You know, because this time around, David's not running. This is not a case where David is fleeing to the mountains. Instead, he's saying, I'm taking refuge in the Lord. How can you say to me, flee like a bird to your mountain? Forget it. God's got this. God is in control. So evidently, David knew that on rare occasions, it might be necessary to get out of Dodge, you know, get out of harm's way, if you're being stalked by a King Saul or by an Absalom. But more often, the Lord wants us to stand firm, not to vacate the premises. He wants us to take refuge in, in him, even though people are wringing their hands and sounding alarms. Now, who were these people telling David to run for the hills? 
couple of possibilities. On the one hand, it might have been his friends who were genuinely concerned for David's safety. On the other hand, it could have been David's antagonists who were taunting him, who were trying to undermine his confidence in God. Hey, David, Tweety Bird, flee to your mountain. You know, God doesn't care. God's not going to help you. Well, whoever was giving David this advice, their, their negativity was emotionally draining. Our, our English translation of verse 1, David says, you know, how can you say to me, flee like a bird? But the original Hebrew reads, how can you say to my soul, flee like a bird? See, all this negative talk about the dangers lurking in his world was getting to David's soul. His inner being was being worn down. You ever feel this way? You know, you ever feel like the constant reminder of your troubles is sucking the life right out of you? Has your soul had about all it can take? Well, the the soul-exhausting troubles that Psalm 11 speaks of come from two major sources. The uh, first is very specific, personal foes. Personal foes. Look again at verse 2. Look, the wicked bend their bows. They set their arrows against the strings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. So David was, was the target of some very specific personal foes. They were shooting at him. Now, maybe you can identify with David. Look around. Look around. What personal foes are shooting at you these days? Maybe it's an ex-spouse who's uh, fighting dirty for custody of the kids. You know, maybe it's a critical uh, customer who has given you a horrible review and it's out there in public for all to see. Maybe it's a neighbor who says that that new fence you built, well, it's on his side of the property line, not yours. Maybe it's the insurance company that won't pay for your medical procedure or a family member, extended family member who's not inviting you to the wedding or the English teacher who doesn't like a thing you write. You know, who are your personal foes these days? Who are your personal foes? They they come in a wide variety of shapes and sizes. They set their arrows against the strings and they shoot from the shadows at you. You know, if only you could ditch them. Maybe, Maybe you could flee like a bird to your mountain. Well, personal foes aren't the only source of troubles in our lives. We're we're also having to deal these days with crumbling foundations. Look at verse 3, when the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? We're living in a day of crumbling foundations. How many of you, I won't ask for a show of hands, but how many of you have stopped watching the news because it's all bad? Or how, how many of you, even though you continue to be news junkies, you always leave the news, you, you turn it off, or you, you, you turn off your, uh, your computer, you turn, turn down your cell, uh, cell phone where you've been uh, looking at online news, and you're filled with anger or fear or frustration. Seems like the world's falling apart. I mean, where, where should I start? Should I start with the economy? You say, well, there are some good signs in the economy. Yeah, there are good signs, but when your country is $28 trillion in debt, it's only a matter of time before the economic bubble bursts. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can we do? 
What about business? You know, how many businesses have had to uh, close down during COVID, lay off workers? Maybe you're one of those who has gotten laid off. Or maybe you're working for a company that's barely staying alive and having a hard time uh, filling the, the, the spots, the employee vacated spots, because many people are now deciding they're going to stay at home and get the government check rather than go to work. I talked to two business owners in the last week who said this is a huge problem for them. One guy has 30 openings in his company right now. When the foundations are being destroyed, what, what can you do? What about education? You know, they close the schools, and they open the schools, and they close the schools, and teachers are exhausted. Many parents are concerned that their kids have lost an entire year of learning. Graduations are more a fizzle than a celebration this time around. And, and I'm talking about schools in affluent suburban areas. Imagine, if you would, what it would be like to send your child to an inner city school. You're living in the inner city, and you got the best schools that the, the tax dollars, real estate taxes can provide, which is not, you know, not good schools. How disheartening it must be for a parent to send a child to an inner city school. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can you do? What about families, marriages? You, you know that the divorce rate in our country is approaching 50%. One out of every two marriages will end in divorce. So it's not just about Bill and Melinda breaking up. And, and we no longer agree on the definition of marriage. You know, the biblical definition of marriage that we get in the opening book of the Bible that Jesus later endorses in the gospel. One man, one woman for, for, for life. You realize it was just 25 years ago, that's not a long time, when the majority of the House, the majority of the Senate passed a bill called the Defense of Marriage Act, endorsing the biblical view of marriage. Just 25 years ago, and one of the signers was Illinois Senator Barack Obama. And if it's not divorce, and it's not, if it's not a redefinition of marriage, then it's, it's just a discarding of the whole idea as more and more couples decide to live together without the benefit of a lifelong commitment. When the foundations are being destroyed, hey, what can you do? Let's throw church in, into the mix, okay? For the last two decades... You know, after things topped off at about the turn of the century, in terms of church attendance, for the last two decades, it's been plummeting. Even those who consider themselves regular church attenders have redefined regular. It means once or twice a month, not every week. And that, that was before COVID. And after COVID, we were... We all went online. Fortunately, by God's grace, we were able to provide weekend services. But according to the surveys that were done, about a third of the people in churches across the country never made it to online. They just stopped going. And many of the people who did go online over a year's time got tired of watching church in their family room and stopped altogether. When, when the foundations are being destroyed, what can we do? What about justice? Are the foundations crumbling? You know, all it takes is for a, a few notorious cases like the death of George Floyd to leave a certain percentage of the population wondering, 
Well, can the police be trusted? And then it's taken to an extreme. And now we're talking about defunding law enforcement. And uh, rioters are taking it to an extreme beyond that and burning down cities. When the foundations are being destroyed, what, what can you do? Aren't you glad you came to church today for this inspiring exhortation to look around Look, look around at all the personal foes, all the crumbling foundations. Kind of makes you want to flee like a bird to your mountain. Now, maybe not literally flee, but there are other ways we escape. There are other ways we flee. You know, you may flee from your personal foes, from the crumbling foundation, from having to think about all that by just binging on Netflix or by shopping till you drop, or by drinking a little more than you, you typically do. You know, the sale of hard alcohol is up, I mean, dramatically over the course of the last year. Or maybe you're going crazy with exercise, or you, you've enrolled your kids in every activity under the sun so you could go from one thing to another to another to another. Maybe you find yourself plunging into an unhealthy relationship, but hey, it takes your mind off of other things. Maybe you've been redecorating your house to the nth degree, including the cat and the dog, if they'll stay, stay still. You know, anything to numb you to your problems. Well, David is not a fan of escapism. David encourages us to, to look around, to face honestly our personal foes and crumbling foundations. But he doesn't want us to stop there. So number one, look around. Don't run from it. But number two, you got to look up. Number two, look up. Let's go back to Psalm 11. We're going to pick it up where we left off. Verse 4. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. He observes everyone on earth. His eyes examine them. The Lord examines the righteous, but the, the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. On the wicked, he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot. Wow. This is a picture of a God who is sovereign, a God who is large and in charge. The, the opening two lines of verse 4, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. Uh, Bible scholars say these two lines indicate the imminence and the transcendence of God. You say, wow, that's terrific. What does that mean? <laughs> well, imminent, transcendent. Imminent means God is close by. It means no detail of our lives escapes God's attention. It, it means that God desires a personal relationship with us. He's in his holy temple, and in Old Testament times, the temple represented the presence of God in the midst of his people. God is here with us. God knows what's going on in your life. You know, another one of his psalms, Psalm 139 David says, Lord, you have searched me, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, Lord. God is imminent, intimately acquainted with our lives. The flip side of that, he is, he is transcendent. That's the second line of verse 4. He's not only in his holy temple in our midst, he's on his heavenly throne. He's large and in charge, ruling over all from his heavenly, awesome, all-powerful throne. 
Look up. You know, after we look around, after we take stock of our personal foes and the crumbling foundations, we need to look up. We need to focus our attention on our sovereign, large and in charge God who is both imminent and transcendent, who is both close by and supreme over all. Now back to the middle of verse four. What is our sovereign God doing as we're wrestling with the problems of life? Middle of the verse, he observes everyone on earth. His eyes examine them. The Lord examines the righteous. David uses two different verbs in this verse. Don't forget, if you see repeating words or ideas, circle them. Okay, God's trying to get some point, some important point across. Two different verbs, observe and examine, to emphasize the fact that God has got his eye on us. These are strong verbs. You know, David's not saying that God casts an occasional glance our way or he takes a sneak peek at us. Now, God is constantly, carefully scrutinizing our lives, observing, examining. And he's not just got his eye out for bad guys who are making trouble for us, although we're going to get to the bad guys in just a moment here. God's examination begins with us, his followers. Opening line of verse 5, the Lord examines the righteous. You say, well, why? You know, what is God looking for in our lives? Well, go back to Psalm 139 that I just quoted from a moment ago. God knows everything about me. He knows the words I'm going to speak even before I say them. You come to the end of the psalm, and David says in the closing two verses, Lord, search me and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way, see if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. See, David regularly invites God to examine his life when, when he's anxious about personal foes and, and, and crumbling foundations. He doesn't just pray, Lord, look at all these troublemakers in my life. Aren't you going to do something about them? No, David prays, hey, God, look at me. You know, examine me. All all these problems I'm dealing with, am am I doing okay? Is there something I'm supposed to be learning here? Is there something you want to correct in my life? I got an email from a person in the church this last week, and she was commenting on everything she'd learned about workplace stuff in our Daniel series that we just completed. And she said, you know, during the course of this series, I was interviewing for a new job, and uh, she said, I really, really wanted this job because I've done the very same job at the same company some time ago before I left to raise my kids, and so I, you know, I knew I could do it, and I knew I'd love it, and there were 130 candidates for the job, and she said it came down to me and one other person. It was just a, a couple of months long process. It was really drawn out, and the other person got the job. You know, bummer. You say, well, why wasn't God looking out for her? Well, he was. Yeah, I guarantee you, God didn't miss a thing. And God is most concerned, listen, he's most concerned about how she's processing this disappointing situation. And my guess is that God's really pleased with her response. Because listen to how she concludes her email to me. This is wonderful stuff. She says, God has reminded me that it doesn't matter where I work or how many hours I work. 
I can and need to apply the principles from the Daniel series where I am right now. Pastors love people like this. <laughs> she says, I'm still a wife and mom and part-time employee. I need to strive to be God's faithful worker in all of these. I have jobs right now that need the best of me for God's glory. Is it easy to accept? Well, some days yes, some days no. I really, capital really, I really wanted and needed that job but I'm going to strive to be a faithful worker in the here and now. The timing of the Daniel series was no accident. Thankful for our church and church family. I read that and I thought, oh my goodness. God was examining. He was examining this woman throughout her, her ordeal and I'll bet her response brought a smile to God's face. So after we look around at the anxiety-producing troubles of our lives, we need to look up. You know, we, we need to look up and recognize that our sovereign God hasn't missed a thing. He's carefully observing. He's examining what we're going through. So, you know, starting with ourselves as we deal with our challenges. God also has his eye on the troublemakers in our lives, the personal foes, the crumbling foundations. Go back to verse 5. The Lord examines the righteous. We've looked at that. But the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. On the wicked, he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot. Now, verses like this leave us a bit confused, don't they? You know, on the one hand, we're glad to hear that our, our foes, our antagonists, are going to get it in the neck. Right? Come on. Yeah, but on the other hand, we're, we're a bit nervous when the psalmist says that God hates the wicked with a passion. You say, wait, wait a second, I thought God loves everybody. Isn't that what the, the Bible's most familiar verse, John 3, 16, says, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. You know, God can't love people and hate people at the same time. Well, actually, God can now, now, we struggle to understand this because we tend to look at love and hate as opposing emotions. And so it's impossible to feel, it's impossible to feel love and hate at the same time. But for God, love and hate most often describe his actions. Let, let me explain. When the Bible says that God loves the world, it's talking about what God has done to show that love. He sent us his one and only son when we had distanced ourselves, alienated ourselves from a holy God because of our sinfulness, when we had cut ourselves off from the giver of life and deserved nothing but death. God sent his son who absorbed, who took the punishment our sins deserve. He died in our place. He died the death we were supposed to die when he died upon the cross. And then he was raised from the dead and he now offers forgiveness and new life to everyone who will surrender to him. You know, God's love for us is demonstrated in action. Okay, love is, love is a verb. It's an action. Well, so is hate. 
You know, those who reject God's offer of forgiveness and new life will be punished for their sinful rebellion against God because God is holy and just and good. He can't just wink at our wickedness and the penalty for sin, uh, the penalty for refusing, resisting the giver of life, the penalty, as I said a moment ago, is death. And so all through the Bible, we see examples of God's judgment on unrepentant sinful people. And in that sense, God hates the wicked. I mean, you remember the story of Noah and the ark? God saves Noah's family. What, what happens to the rest of sinful humanity destroyed by the flood? R- remember what happens to the sexually decadent cities of Sodom and Gomorrah? They're destroyed by fire and brimstone. Sounds very much like Psalm 11, verse 6. On the wicked he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot. I mean, I could go on additional stories, both the Old and the New Testament, of God's judgment on people who choose to persist in their sins. So, but why is David making that point in Psalm 11? Because when we're facing personal foes and crumbling foundations, it's easy to conclude that God is oblivious to what the bad guys are doing. J- j- just look at what they're getting away with, and God doesn't even notice. Oh, yes, he does. L- look up. Look up and you will see a sovereign God who doesn't miss a thing. God delivers his people. God repays their enemies. You you say, well, that hasn't happened yet. Which leads to David's final point in Psalm Psalm 11. Point number one, look around. Point number two, look up. Point number three, look ahead. Look ahead. Let's see how David closes the psalm. Verse 7. For the Lord is righteous, he loves justice. The upright will see his face. Future, looking ahead, will see his face. Let me close with a story. I've told the story many times, but I love the story, so I'm going to tell it again. Some of you will probably lip sync it with me as I, I tell it. The story is about two farmers. Okay, one of them has no room for God in his life. He mistreats his employees, he cheats on his wife, he works seven days a week because he wants to make as much money as he can, which he'll spend entirely on himself. Okay, the other farmer is a Christ follower. Now, he's far from perfect, but he's fully devoted to Jesus, and he loves God's word. He loves to read it and apply it to his life. He loves to drive his family to church on the weekends where they'll worship God together, which drives the first farmer crazy. In fact, he's told the Christ-following farmer, he said, I don't know how you could expect to succeed when you take a day off every week to do that church thing. And the Christ-following farmer responded, he said, well, God is my number one priority, and God will reward me at the harvest. Well, harvest time's time comes, fall season, and the crops are brought in, and who has the most crops? Now, if this were a Pollyannish story, you'd say, well, the Christ follower, but no, no, it's the other guy who works seven days a week. He's got more crops. And this is what he taunts the Christ follower with. He says, you know, so what happened? I thought God was going to reward you at the harvest. To which the Christ follower calmly responds, yeah, but it's not yet the final harvest. That's what David is saying in verse 7 here. 
It's not yet the final harvest, but the Lord is righteous. He loves justice, and the upright will see his face. You know, look ahead. Does it, does it seem like the, the personal foes are getting the upper hand, that they're getting away with murder? Does it seem like the foundations of society are crumbling all around you? Look, look ahead. Our sovereign God who is righteous, who, who loves justice, is going to sort it all out. And if you've surrendered your life to Jesus, you will see him face to face. I love the way that the Apostle John puts it in 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3. He says, when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And all who have this hope in him, in Jesus, purify themselves just as he is pure. You hear what John is saying? He's saying, you, you, you keep looking ahead. You stay focused on the prospect of seeing Jesus, and that's going to have a transforming impact on your life. It'll change you from the inside out. You get it? Good. Let's pray. Let me walk you through what we covered today in prayer. As you're bowed in God's presence, let me encourage you to look around. What are the personal enemies? that you're facing right now, they're making life miserable for you. What are the crumbling foundations that you are most concerned about? You know, don't run away. Don't flee like a bird to your mountain. Find your refuge in God. Don't numb yourself. Don't medicate yourself with escapist behaviors. Look at these troubles, frankly. But then secondly, look up. There is a sovereign God who is both imminent and transcendent, who examines both his followers and unrepentant sinners. When he looks at you, what does he see? How are you dealing with the problems you just brought to your mind? Do you need to come to God right now and say, oh God, I've not been looking up. I've been looking around, but I've not been looking up. You know, put your hope and your trust in God right now. Renew that commitment to him. Tell him, forgive me for all the worry, all the anxiety, all the frustration, all the, all the medicating of my problems. And then lastly, look ahead. Can you see the finish line? And, and Jesus is there. It's what the writer of Hebrews says. When you run the race of life, keep your focus on Christ. An old chorus we used to sing around here said, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Oh, Lord Jesus, turn our eyes to you today. May those who brought the baggage of personal foes and crumbling foundations with them today, may they feel that load lightened. May they, may they look up and see you in your sovereignty reigning on your heavenly throne, and yet intimately acquainted with every detail of our lives and put our hope and our trust fully in you. That's our prayer in Jesus' name, amen.